Welcome to the second season of Stories from the Pennsylvania Wilds. This is the 2021 season. Yeah, and we're really happy that you're here to join us. Um, you know, we, this has been a tremendous and very interesting ride. Uh, if you've been with us since the beginning, about a, oh, a year ago, when we launched this podcast. Yes. Um, and we just want to sort of put it out there that because of this ongoing pandemic, uh, because of things that are happening at the university, um, we are facing faculty cuts. Uh, you know, things are, are a little tough right now. We're only going to be doing very limited, probably just two episodes. And those are both going to be with our students um, because it's been hard. It's been very difficult for Jeffrey and I to get out and travel around and see, meet different people, talk to them about their local history stories. Um, certainly a lot of local history places have been shut. Exactly. Um, so we, we, we're not going to continue a charade that we're going to have a season that's going to be, uh, you know, talking about lumber industry in, in Warren County or something like that. Um, it's just not going to happen this year. Uh, hopefully by the fall, maybe things will settle down. Uh, we'll have a little more time to do things. But again, we've had this COVID issue. Um, we are also now, as I said, dealing with faculty retrenchments and faculty layoffs here. And so um, when I say we're literally fighting for our jobs, that's, that's kind of what's happening here. So we're a little distracted, but we do want to get these two episodes out to you. And we do think today's episode is going to be a really good one. And so yeah. what we're going to be talking about is women's suffrage. And I, I wanted to turn it over to Jeffrey because it's kind of it's like right up your alley when you talk about global issues, isn't it? It is, actually. And um, with the election of the first female vice president in 2020, in 100 years, we've seen a remarkable change from granting the woman the right to vote, not just in the US, but globally, particularly in Western countries, to women taking prominent leadership positions. Of course, we're not close to being fully equal yet, obviously. Um, suffrage could never achieve that quickly. Um, but the history of the women's suffrage movement in many ways can be traced to the ideas of democracy and representation in our societies and what took place earlier in the 18th and 19th centuries. What I mean really is the French and American revolutions, um, especially like the French revolution, but also the American revolution, which have these ideals, these debates about what are the rights and obligations of people in a society. The French actually openly have more debates about women's suffrage and women's rights um, and these are catalysts for the 19th century movements for suffrage, particularly in Europe, um, that also come to North America in the second half of the 19th century. And there's a, by the late 19th century, there's this large range of women who are part of this. It goes from being more uh, wealthy women who have a voice in education to a growing number of working women who are part of society and the changing center of society. Um, and their tactics change as a result of that, as they're fighting for it. Um, Similar to other groups fighting for rights, these women were like minorities. These women were told to just wait, right? This is actually a tactic of a lot of civil rights women. It's, oh, just wait, it will come to you. Probably one of the most leading examples in Britain was um, Emmeline Pankhurst, who lived from 1858 to 1928, who was told by the prime minister at the time, literally to quote, be patient. But she, her daughters and other movement leaders realized that basically that was code for not rocking the boat and keeping the status quo. And so some of the wide range of tactics included nonviolent resistance, protests, but particularly in Europe and then eventually in North America, it included actually violence too. Um, small things of violence, it never really harmed anyone, but as a way to grow uh, prominence of the movement. Now in the US, 
Leaders such as Carrie Chapman Catt helped energize the movement in the early 20th century. And these national movements and even included protests, women dressed in white, you may remember, dealing with the suffrage movement. Um, sometimes the more uh, direct protests, including chaining themselves to the White House gates. Um, but as we'll hear from Autumn, rural and local communities in Pennsylvania and really arguably nationwide took different tactics. They weren't necessarily so vigilant. Um, and there was a reason for that. It doesn't mean that was wrong. Maybe they needed to be that way for the national movement, but they wanted to appeal to a different group of people. And, and we're gonna let Autumn talk about it. And the last thing I wanna mention is globally, World War I was the final catalyst that helped women gain the right to vote. Um, many countries were asking women to replace men in factories and other things that work. Work. Women worked in munitions factories, for instance. And it was clear that women's participation and roles in the war would have political repercussions. Um, and as the war drew to end, many countries, and you see this really around 1918, you can look at a, this whole kind of like domino of different countries, so to speak, that were granting women rights to vote. It's not just England, but all out of Western Europe, Canada, Australia. Um, and they basically, in 1918, for example, Britain, British women aged 30 and older could vote. By 1928, that became women 21 and older. Um, in Canada, all women could vote in federal elections by 1918. And in the US, just to remind you, in August 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was fully ratified, granting women the right to vote. Um, and while this is a national story, what's great about Autumn's story we're gonna hear, and it's great about what we're doing this uh, term, is we're gonna hear from our students. Part of why we set this up um, and Mark chime in on this, is this for our students to have a voice too, right? It's not just for us. We've been interviewing people, but Autumn really did an excellent job um, about discussing the local and rural votes and actually how it differs from the national vote. So, I mean, perhaps you want to add some no. that, but I think, and also to mention also that she she had an award for, for doing this too. She did, yeah. And, and in fact, like as Jeffrey said, this was sort of the original catalyst for this podcast is that we have students here at Clarion who are doing really great work. And a lot of it, because they're student projects and they need to research something local so they, they can get to those resources, yes. they're telling local histories. And so Autumn did a great job. She won the um, Student Undergraduate Research Award, um, one, of the, one of the grants that are given out to our undergraduate students here to travel and do research. Yes. Um, and so she wrote a great paper on women's suffrage in rural Western Pennsylvania, Clarion County, Jefferson County, and Indiana County. So now maybe, maybe Indiana isn't quite the Pennsylvania wilds, but um, nonetheless, rural Western Pennsylvania. And they connect, so, actually. Yeah. They connect. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're close enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of connections between these counties, and people know that now. And so it makes sense. Right. We venture a little beyond the wilds. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. So Autumn did a great job, and we really wanted to showcase what she has done here. So without really further ado, because the, the interview with Autumn is lengthy, and we get into depth on a lot of great topics. So we will just uh, introduce Autumn here. and. Thank you so much for listening to our wonderful students tell their stories. We would like to welcome today, joining us on Stories from the Pennsylvania Wilds, one of our great students here at Clarion University, Autumn Martino. 
and Autumn has been working on a grant project with both Dr. Diamond and I, Jeffrey and I, uh, to talk about the women's suffrage movement in rural Western Pennsylvania. So welcome, Autumn. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you've obviously been working on this project for well over a year now, right? Um, what Can you give us a brief overview of why you wanted to start looking at women's suffrage in Western Pennsylvania? Um, yeah, so back in 2019, when I was given the grant, I had just finished a research paper on the impact of suffrage based off of World War One. And you had actually, Dr. Senko approached me and said, based off that research paper, I can tell you're very passionate about women's suffrage. There's not a lot of information on it in terms of Western rural Pennsylvania. Would you be willing to look into that? And I was extremely excited about that opportunity. I was like, yes, absolutely. And then last spring is when the presentation was supposed to be held. But unfortunately, COVID-19 broke out and it was postponed and I was given an extension. And so the research paper is finished. I learned so much. It was an amazing opportunity. Unfortunately, the presentation is still postponed to spring. And it is looking like even in spring, it will probably be virtual. Just sad because I'm not getting that real experience doing a presentation, but it's completely understandable. Safety has to come first. We hope this yeah. makes up for it a little bit, actually, because in some ways, being able to talk about it to a wider audience is not just a presentation, but it shows a wider wider range of your abilities. So look at it this way as, as a better opportunity. Yeah, and you can probably tell if you're listening to us that we are, again, on Zoom. Uh, we had tried, Jeffrey and I had bought a bunch of equipment with a grant uh, and we tried to set it up and didn't have everything we needed and then COVID started rising again. And so we are back to Zoom um, yes. for our interviews. So. With that, um, you know, what was, if you could give us one major takeaway, like one big thing that you learned about this project, what would it be? So what I learned about the project, just in general, when it comes to researching, is really being able to utilize all of your resources, getting in touch with all the historical societies, seeing what they have, and not being afraid of doing some hard work, using that microfilm, which <laughs> it is a pain, but you will feel like a real historian afterwards. In terms of the topic itself, one big takeaway that I got after over a year of research is that because we know the outcome of the event, we know women are given suffrage, we sometimes tend to not fully appreciate what a daunting task it was for the suffragettes. It was very difficult, it was very hard. I couldn't have imagined being a suffragist myself and I am so grateful to all of those amazing women. Could you give some examples about that, particularly to highlight um, the struggles also between the rural urban divide um, that, may, that may be important part of your research? Absolutely. So something I was always taught in every single one of you guys' classes and Dr. Robinson's is that we tend to look back on the past through the lens of someone from the 21st century. And it is important when studying history, we understand the social context and we understand how people during that time 
thought about things. And that was very applicable for this research because something that really shocked me and I think would shock a lot of people from the 21st century, just because of the assumptions we have, is how many women opposed suffrage. And it seems quite shocking. Like there were women who said, yes, I should not have the right to vote. And there, there were, and as you research it more, you understand why those perceptions were there, but it just makes you realize that not only did these suffragettes have to convince men that women should have the right to vote, when in reality they have no impact on their life. So there's, how do you motivate men into believing, yes, we need to fight for women to be able to vote. But now you also have to convince women themselves that yes, you should believe you should have the right to vote and you should help us. I love that you've taken that away from our classes. I mean, I, I think it's such a, you're so right. That's the point we all try to make is we need to not look at these things through these 21st century lenses. And so, you know, that's awesome that you've done that. And, and you mentioned something, you mentioned trying to convince these women. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of what was going on? You know, how did they try and convince people, especially in these rural areas to vote for suffrage? Yeah, so first you have to understand why would a woman in general oppose suffrage? And there seems to be this common ideology that liberation means sacrificing femininity. That is a huge thing. A lot of these women, based on the common notions of gender during that time period, what they believe to be femininity, what they believe to be the definition of a woman, it all seems to be threatened by this notion of suffrage. There is this idea that suffragettes don't want women to be women anymore. They want to make us men. They're trying to take away our womanhood, almost. So the biggest goal for suffragettes was we need to convince women that suffrage is not going to make them less of a woman. That suffrage is not going to make them a man. And we're not trying to become like men. We're not trying to overpower men. We're not trying to take away any femininity. We're not trying to strip women of motherhood. We respect all that. We just want equal rights. And you can have equal rights and be different. And so that was something these suffragettes really had to prove. And they also, through their means of campaigning, had to prove that you can still conform to these traditional ideas of how a woman should act and behave and still have suffrage. And you see that a lot in how Pennsylvania women specifically choose to campaign. So in your paper, you talk a lot about um, separate spheres, right? And I think this is what you're describing here in this conversation is this idea that in the 19th and early 20th century, women had their place in society and men had theirs. And these spheres shouldn't basically interact, right? Um, and so I think that was a really good part of your paper to sort of talk about that. Um, but, but describe to the listeners sort of, you write about really two sort of events. There's first the statewide suffrage movement, right? Commonwealth of Pennsylvania goes out to vote. Uh, it was this 1915, is that correct? Yes. I think 1915 for state suffrage, right? Should women in the state of Pennsylvania be allowed to vote? 
And then there is the nationwide uh, amendment that gets ratified, right? So there's two separate like uh, attempts to ratify it here, right? And so what was the big thing in 1915? How did they get the word out to rural areas, especially, you know, Clarion County, et cetera, Jefferson County about women's suffrage? Um, it's interesting because the approach to suffrage changes over time. It originally started out as a national movement. And then by the 20th century, a lot of women felt that they'd make more progress going state by state. And then it became a national movement again. So when we're in the period of going state by state, and we're looking at Pennsylvania specifically, Pennsylvanian suffragettes were very clever, and in my opinion, innovative in means of showing one Pennsylvanians that we are the traditional types of women, that we're not sacrificing our femininity through suffrage, that we are poised and elegant and sophisticated and intelligent, and two, getting the word out to all of the counties because you can't just have people in the urban area supporting you. Maybe they have bigger populations and you can get the vote passed even if they support you, but you need the societal change. So how do they do that? And the answer is through this campaigning technique that we now call the Justice Bell Rally. So the Justice Bell, was a replica of the Liberty Bell. And these suffragettes put it on a pickup truck and traveled to every county within Pennsylvania. And that is just mind blowing to me because I can only imagine what that traveling must have been like, especially during that time period. Yeah, um, this is 19. Yeah, this is 1915. Right. Yeah. There's no freeway. Uh, yes. That's an incredible undertaking. And especially when you're going to these rural areas, like maybe going city to city, it's not so bad. But even today, traveling to some of these rural areas, they're out in the middle of nowhere. It's terrible. So yeah, it was a huge undertaking. But it was very clever because you did get the word out to every single county. And it gave you the opportunity. It gave those suffragists the opportunity to combat any anti-suffrage propaganda that was present in that county whether it was different forms of propaganda that varied or if it was the same theme and it just gave you the chance to talk to these people individually and really showcase to them by going and entering into each county. It was a visual aid for all of these residents to see, oh, this is what a suffragette looks like. She is poised, she is elegant, she is intelligent. She has all the qualities of femininity that we believe in during this time period. It was completely dismantling all of the anti-suffrage propaganda. And it was greatly influential. And um, me and Dr. Sanko had actually talked about this, is what types of marketing techniques exist during the time period? And how do you use that to your advantage? And this was something that I felt was very modern in terms of how they approached it. And I was very impressed by it. But it's very symbolic. The Liberty Bell is a symbol, not, well, it's, it's Pennsylvania, people forget, but it's Philadelphia, but it's Pennsylvania, it's, and it's the nation, right? It's a symbol of freedom. It's just, when it's called, Lib, when you, uh, oh, Justice Bell, but the Liberty Bell, which it's mimicking, is the idea of liberties. And that's what exactly the women are asking for. So it is modern, right? But it's also harking back to kind of a national symbol 
Do you think that's how it helps appeal to rural women? Because a lot of the movement was very urban and these women are sophisticated, but they're kind of elite women. How do you appeal to women, the everyday person and say, you should have the right to vote too. Why should you care? Uh, for the average person in Clarion or, or Venango County or wherever you may be, right? Not just in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. Yeah, absolutely. And with the Liberty Bell, making a replica of that, yeah. what they did with the Justice Bell was actually they chained it so that it wouldn't make any noise. And it was to represent women being silenced. And it wasn't until the ratification yeah. of the 19th Amendment, they actually run it for every state in America. And that's just a little fun fact that I thought was really amazing and symbolic. Yeah. But when it comes to appealing to the everyday rural woman, it's this notion of you need to vote. And you need to vote because society is changing and politics in the home are not separate. Even if we wanna believe they're separate and women should be in the home and men should be in politics, with the second industrial revolution and everything that is changing as the world is becoming more modern, they are intersecting. So if you believe you should have authority of the home and you should have authority over the children, then you need to vote because the home and the children are being impacted by politics. And that was a very strong message that Pennsylvania suffragettes capitalized on. And it was great in my opinion, because they were smart in that they weren't trying to combat traditional mindsets. That's very hard to do, but they were instead using them to, to their advantage. It makes sense when you're talking about these spears, but the private spear, the home is, I don't know if it's ever really been that private, but it's, you're right, it is changing, right? That, I mean, now it's really changing. We're all at Zoom at home so we can see each other's home, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Um, but even before that, your private spear was your public spear and your public spear was your private spear. There's, there's kind of like this, you're right, there's this intersection and it's how you appeal to these people. But the, the interesting thing about all this is, is that the men who have to give the woman the right to vote, because men have to vote for it and women can't vote. So they can't vote to give themselves the right because yes, they would vote most likely, well, it would be split, but they would definitely have, would help them give them the vote, but they had to rely on men. How did they convince men to do this? Particularly even rural men. Yeah, so that is an unfortunate consequence is that the suffragettes have to appease to the men. And so you see this divide in the overall national suffrage movement of yeah. Are we going to appease to men or no? Does that kind of go against the beliefs that if we are to be liberated and if we are equal, then we should get the right to vote without having to appease men. And so th what this divide is, is some suffragettes will choose to use militant tactics and others will not. And in Pennsylvania, they chose to use educational methods instead of militant ones. And the reason for that is the men were basically terrified of the militant tactics. Um, it was a way not to intimidate them. It, um, there's also this propaganda, the men here that women were trying to take over and become all powerful and then they would end up being inferior. So it was trying not to play into that, trying not to increase their fears, trying to show, no, we are still these well-obedient, traditional woman, we are just going to have equal rights. So again, it's almost similar to how they appeased the woman themselves, how they did with the men. 
And you could debate whether or not that goes against the values of the suffrage movement or not. But in reality, in terms of playing politics, that was a smart move. Yeah, you mentioned in your paper too, you know, newspapers talking about divorce rates in Chicago after, you know, uh, suffrage is approved there. And so there's really a lot of this propaganda out there that could scare men uh, potentially away from voting for it. It was. Do you remember that cartoon I may have shown you too? We can put it on the link maybe with our podcast. It was a woman chasing a man with a broomstick and saying like, you think it's bad now? I right. Mean, it's really this kind of, it's, it's really propaganda against what's going on um, and against the idea of suffrage. And it's so you're right. They have to have a different tactic than maybe the urban ones do. And each place has to have the different kind of uh, way to do it. Some people may be more militant and some people may be not because they might be a better way to get what they want. And so speaking about that, um, what's happening in Clarion and Jefferson County? Because you talk about, you know, the newspapers, you talk about rallies. So can you give us an idea of what, like, give us some examples of what's happening here or maybe how many people voted for or against it? What's sort of going on here? So what is interesting is that Clarion County Jefferson County and Indiana County all did vote in support of women's suffrage. For the most part, it was pretty equal, half and half, um, which is to be suspected. But what surprised me is that they did vote in support of women's suffrage because you see a lot of this public opinion being opposed to women's suffrage. So it just shows how impactful the campaigning by the suffragettes were that they did disprove a lot of this propaganda, that they were able to calm down these fears. And specifically what's happening in a lot of these counties is one, the justice bell is coming in, which is significant because in these rural areas, there's not as a heightened suffrage movement as in the city. So there might not be as much exposure. There are suffragettes within the county but they might not be as mobile or as active as in urban places. We see this a lot with social movements. It's just a common trend. So this really does kind of open the eyes of the people in the rural areas. And at the same time, unfortunately, there is influence in these areas from the anti-woman suffrage movement that is occurring in Pennsylvania. And in fact, um, it is led by Mrs. Horace Brooks. We do not know her first name, but she went by Mrs. Horace Brooks, which just again illustrates how passionately she felt about traditional gender roles. So, Or what she saw as traditional gender roles at the time. Yeah. Yes. What's interesting in your papers you talk about, it's not just the bell going by because people may or may not have seen it, but it's reported in the newspaper. How does, how does this kind of, in a sense, how does the event get magnified by the media of the time? In everything I found, there was no um, aggression towards the Justice Bell. There was no bad publicity for it. It might not have been as talked about in as much detail as another county, but it was all positive. And also, it's important, I want to make sure the audience understands, the Justice Bell didn't just like come in, stay for 10 minutes, and it was like, okay, bye. They were there for days. They had open meetings to the public where these suffragettes would speak. And so it was really a moment 
for the public to connect to these suffragettes as individuals. Because a lot of times hearing the suffragettes, these group of women that you might not even have known, you might not have known a suffragette. And so you had these ideal ideas about them that may or may not have been true. And so you got to know them on an individual level and it humanized them in a way. And you got to hear what it was they were saying, what it was they believed in, not what everyone was telling you they believed in or what everyone was telling you they were fighting for. You got to hear the truth and not the regurgitated propaganda. And you see that influence in um, Indiana County, for example. Religion is something that gets brought into this. A lot of those who are anti-suffrage try to make the suffrage movement into something that's anti-Christian even though the suffrage movement wasn't religiously based at all. And there is one pastor, Reverend Jay Calvert, in Indiana County of the Presbyterian Church during that time, who actually gave a sermon on how he approved the suffrage and thought it was completely biblical. And that was groundbreaking, especially in Indiana County. And so that just goes to show that part of this Justice Bell rally is humanizing these women so that you can see them for who they are and not who they've been projected to be in newspapers or in churches or in school or wherever. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's awesome. Um, now, now tell us how did Pennsylvania vote in 1915? Did they vote in favor of suffrage or do they vote against it? As a um, so unfortunately, Pennsylvania as a whole did not vote for suffrage. But what is interesting is there are these geographical trends. So again, with that 21st century mindset, we think, oh, all the liberal, open-minded urban people voted for suffrage and all those redneck rural people did not. And that's not true. It was based on location. So Northern Pennsylvania, voted for suffrage more than Southern Pennsylvania. And Western Pennsylvania voted for suffrage more than Eastern Pennsylvania. So it was very much based on geography. I'm not sure of the exact reasoning for that, why that was caused, but it's definitely there. That makes sense to me in a way. We do look back and we think about things from our perspective, but at that time, the cities weren't necessarily the way we look at cities now. They were uh, harbingers of sort of social stagnation at times, right? Um, and they were opposed to this. In fact, did you find some examples of maybe where men were supporting these women because they were going through similar struggles? I mean, in a sense, how does class interact with this? I mean, it's hard to do that. I know you may have not fully been able to get to that, um, many because of records, and that's the, one of the problems we all know if we're historians, is, is sometimes it's hard particularly to get people who don't have as many documents. But do you see that maybe people who are perhaps not elites saying, you know what, we, we're in the same situation as women. Uh, maybe we need to support them because they need to support us. So when it comes to social class, on the national level, there had been so much apprehension from men to giving women the right to vote because that was the one thing that was equal among all men of social classes is that they could all vote. And so that was like a little bit of liberty that lower class men had. And 
something that's interesting that I came upon in my research is on the national level, a lot of women thought they were going to have suffrage a lot earlier when the 15th Amendment was passed, which gave all African-American men the right to vote because of the end of slavery. They thought, oh, they're going to, all men can vote now, regardless of race, and then they'll also let all women vote. And that didn't happen. And that was intentional, even though it just kind of makes logical sense that the 15th and 19th Amendment would occur at the same time, because we're just going to allow everyone to vote. A lot of white men were concerned of, do we want everyone to vote? This is the one liberty as a lower class white men have. Now, African-American men can vote. If women can vote, they're lowering in status. And there's this idea of, is if everyone can vote, does it even matter anymore? Like it becomes less valuable. And so there was apprehension in that sense from lower class men. Looking in Pennsylvania, there is this movement known as the um, populism movement among farmers. Yeah. Farmers uniting together, trying to gain rights wow. and more influence in politics. They felt like they were being looked down upon by the elite men. And a lot of times they'd be asked about their stance on suffrage. A lot of people were interested in wanting to know their stance because it seems like those ideologies would align well with the suffrage. Now they never gave a stance. They remain neutral. They refused to say they supported or opposed. So it is possible, again, that they supported suffrage because those ideologies align. It's also possible they didn't because, again, wanting equality and liberty for your group doesn't mean you want it for everyone. And there really is a, yeah. a, a big divide, even within the working class, within labor unions at this time, yeah. as to what they really want, uh, right? I mean, the Knights of Labor, which is basically by this point fallen apart, really runs into trouble against the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, about how do we approach topics like the eight-hour workday about suffrage? And so there isn't even unanimity uh, amongst all of them either. So I think I think you're picking up on a lot of the things that are are happening nationwide, no doubt. It makes sense too, because if you one thing that happened with uh, with class is there was a, a way to want to divide the working class too, based on race, right? It's easier to control. So what you're describing is the way to divide the working class even more so, um, because it's possible, and I'm sure they thought about this, that if all these working class men and women vote, they could be the majority of the population voting. What does that mean for us if we're the elites in certain places? Um, and they are concerned about that. So it's so it can go both ways. The fact that those people actually decided not to give a stance almost tells me, and this is, I mean, you can make an argument a different way, that they probably supported it. They just couldn't say it because they could easily have said we don't support it. But the fact they didn't take a stance tells me they probably did, but just didn't want to say it because of the climate. And what you're describing is like, there's a lot of like people who are speaking out against it, but often the people who are very vocal doesn't mean that represents everyone. We see that even in recent elections, they're just very vocal. Um, and so that's, these are all really fascinating things to think about in terms of this divide. Do you think roles also different because women are doing so much the same as men in terms of their work, particularly farmers, right? that women and men work side by side and maybe that impacts them more than a city where we see this kind of idea of spears develop where women are at home, men are in the factory. 
Yeah, so it is interesting because on the rural side, you do have women usually partaking in the laborist chores on the domestic front, working on the farms with the husband. And for example, when we start to see movement out west on the western front, what, that's where a lot of the suffrage for women was first passed state by state was out west. And upon my research, it showed that maintaining separate spheres out west during this time period was nearly impossible. Both genders had to be equal in terms of the laborious work to survive. It was basically survival out there. So in that area, you kind of see this liberation and equality. In urban areas, you see liberation and equality for women in the lower class. There's a class divide here. Because upper class and even middle class, you can have that separate spheres where the man goes off to work and the woman stays home. She might have a maid, a nanny. You know, you have that affordability because of the finances. But lower class, because you are in poverty and because you are struggling in the city, both women and men have to work. There is no woman get to stay home. And so there is sort of like with the Industrial Revolution, this liberating of women because now women are being pushed even more into the workforce, especially if you are the lower class. Yeah, we've talked about this, I know, uh, in classes that you've been in on mine, Autumn, of, you know, especially the labor history course. Of, you know, this, this idea that women don't work before, I don't know, the Industrial Revolution is such a scam. I mean, working <laughs> class people have always been working. I mean, exactly. if you're poor and you can't even afford your rent and bread, everyone in your household is going to work, right? So, I, yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because it's a really important point. This idea that Spears is really a, is a modern thing, actually. This, this quote that woman traditionally on the home doesn't make sense because traditionally their roles have been all around the same labor that the men have been around, which may be at home or may not be at home. So these Spears don't make sense. And that's interesting how it may play out with this sort of vote, too, is that, yeah, we're both going through this. Yeah. Um, you can see there must be a class issue that comes out that's part of that urban rural issue too that makes it very different than today yeah absolutely because separate spheres does come off as a very elitist view because exactly. for women to stay at home you have to have that financial ability so it's easy to say yes women should be in the home when you're wealthy versus if you're in poverty you got to pay your rent you got to feed those eight kids you have it's, it's a different mindset if you're out in the middle of nowhere and your survival is based on the farm or if you just moved out west and you, it's a different situation. And so this idea, the social pressure of separate spheres is hard to maintain and suffragettes also capitalize on that as to, you know, you say you don't want women to vote because they shouldn't be in politics. And women, you think you shouldn't vote because you need to be in the home, but you're not, you haven't been separate this whole time. So why do you need to be separate? And so well, there's like this little bit of manipulation of these people thinking they're these traditional roles and they're in these separate spheres, but they're not. Exactly. Yeah, oftentimes political campaigns succeed at pointing out the painfully obvious, right? I mean, um, and so it sounds like that's what's happening here in the suffragettes movement in, in the 1910s and, and leading up to that. And I know we, we've had you here for a while, but just a, a couple of questions to sort of wrap this up. You know, we just had an election, obviously, it's 2020. Um, I'm not asking you who you voted for, but if you went in and voted, 
did you think about the research you've just done as you you've circled whoever you wanted to vote for or penned in whoever you wanted to vote for oh yeah absolutely i thought about how either party tries to say they're for the working class um i it doesn't matter what election it is it can be this election the election last time the very first election ever everyone always tries to appeal to the working class say they're for the working class but did no you, one ever did is you, for the working class. did you feel like like because you've done a year's worth of research on this did you feel like wow this is really impactful what i'm doing it's the hundredth year yeah. uh that women can vote and here i am a woman voting like did, did that run through your head at all yeah absolutely and it made me sad um knowing all the women that i know who didn't vote it, it was kind of like heart-wrenching it's like oh these suffragettes went through hell and back for you <laughs> they did it for the future generations like <laughs> all you have to do is stand in line and yeah. you take a marker and Right. You're not voting for a ton. It's not like a 20-page exam. It's just the front and the back paper. Like, come on, please. Yeah, Even you, know, if you don't care. Do it. Do it for Susan B. Anthony. It doesn't have to be for you. You know, we often get attached to our research. That's why I had to ask you. You know, it was right. really, you know, your timing was perfect with all of this. Um, you know, so I, I just had to wonder if that was something you had thought of. So. With all that in mind, one more question. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think following up on that is how has this research maybe changed your perspective in general? Like, what have you done? Have you done, have you maybe joined in other organizations maybe to advocate things or other sorts of ways to advocate people to vote, for instance? How has it influenced you on what's the takeaway from this? Let's put it that way, too. Well, I did join the League of Women's Voters, and that's exciting. And as we actually talked about before the recording of this podcast, um, Dr. Diamond, your wife is involved in the movement, and you were saying how they're actually struggling to get younger people involved. And as I noticed, my generation isn't that enthusiastic to vote in general or be involved in politics, and that is very disheartening. And I think that is something that impacted me with this research is Ordinary people do have the ability to change the world, to change society, to change the course. How many hundreds of years did women go without the right to vote? And then these women, through 72 years of hard work, managed it. And it just shows that there is power in campaigning and protesting and just being vocal and it doesn't have to be violent as we saw with the Pennsylvanian suffragettes. It doesn't have to be aggressive or intense. I think a lot of times people don't want to get involved in politics because they think it's evil and corrupted or violent. Like it's just people shouting at one another, which unfortunately it doesn't have to be today, but yeah, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. And you can make that change yourself, but you have to be part of it to change that attitude. So I'm glad that's had that impact on you long-term. Yeah. So one last question for you, Autumn, what is next for you in, in life? Job, grad school, what are you thinking? Well, I'm hoping for grad school. I just applied to West Virginia University, so fingers crossed. Um, I hope I get in. Dr. Sanko is actually a graduate from there. He has been praising West Virginia University since the first day of the first class I've had with him. 
upon my own research, I found it is a fantastic university. So I'm hoping I get in. Um, I'd love to get my master's in public history where I can study historical preservation and cultural resource management, and then use that knowledge and skills to work with indigenous communities. Um, if that doesn't work out, um, hopefully employment wise, I will get into the national parks. Awesome, great. That's, that's great to hear. And yes, this is not an advertisement for West Virginia University, <laughs> go Mountaineers. But uh, yeah, no, it's a fantastic uh, place for public history. and. So we're, we're very proud of you, obviously, Autumn. You did a great job with this research. You did an excellent job. And this oh, is this you. is an advertisement for history, though, in a way. This why, is. Why don't we just be, like, you know, direct and say yeah. look, knows what you can do and that you're talking about grad school and a career path that's very specific. There's other ways you can do it, too, but that's very specific to your interests. So yes. that's great to hear. And we have all the confidence you'll be fine. You'll be Oh, thank you so much. And for all the undergraduate students who are listening, major in history it's great our department is great we might only have three professors but they're the most amazing professors so it's great well we appreciate that and i think on that awesome sparkly note we should uh, let autumn go and we will finish up and wrap up this podcast so thanks so much again autumn for joining us Autumn gave us a great interview and is a perfect example of how students can do research and how the research matters and what they're learning here at our university. Just showing that arts and humanities and the social sciences in general matter. She's showing us that these are the skills she can take. She's studying something that's important to her, but she can take this and apply this to future work. I know she wants to go to graduate school in history, but regardless of that, this could apply to any sort of position she's going for. She can show this example. And what's the greatest thing about this is she took it from a paper that she wrote for a research paper for us as part of this project and adapted it into an oral project. And the way she interviewed with us, and Mark, you could chime in on this, I thought was excellent. She was yeah. really on top of her game. No, she did a great job. And you're right, Jeffrey. I mean, um, the, the arts and humanities, if we're to make another plug here, is it's it's the core of what it is to go to college and to university and to think critically about um, what exists around the world and around you as a person. And uh, these are traits that companies want to hire and, and society desperately needs. Screw companies. I don't you know. They do <laughs> need a, it. It's they do need it, but 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 society needs it. We need educated individuals who critically think about the world around them instead of blindly following. And her points about like how the nuance the the women's suffrage movement was in terms of even the local thing is important. We instead of learning this one story, we tend to do. It shows that the local community was different. Absolutely, um, but it was important to passing in Pennsylvania, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it actually was the it was actually a majority, even a small majority in this area that supported it. That's important for it to pass throughout Pennsylvania, um, and so her this kind of nuance of what she's doing is showing us the kind of nuance of what critical thinking is about. Yeah. There's no one easy answer to things. Uh, one easy answer to movements, right? No. The women's movement could not just rely on urban women. Right. And so this was a great example of it. And we are in local rural Western PA. And she gave us an example of that. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of these these different types of nuances, our next uh, student that we're going to feature, Leon, is um, 
wrote a paper for my class on the Clarion Teacher State College. I think I got that right. Clarion Teacher State College of, uh, of the 1940s, looking at sort of, you know, what's going on here during World War II. And what we found out, what Leon found out, I should say, not myself, is uh, that Clarion hosted a pilot training program for the Army Air Corps here um, in Clarion, Pennsylvania. And it was a really successful program. A couple different iterations of it, um, but this collaboration between state colleges and the war board to get young men who are drafted with nowhere to go to give them some education and some training before they shipped off overseas. And so Leon looks at sort of the relationship between the state college at the time and the war board. And how do those pilots, those soon to be pilots living in Clarion from all over the world, all over the country, I should say, <laughs> how, do, how, do they, how do they live in Clarion? What, what, what is their social life like? Um, what's happening that changes the town, right? So um, Leon's a great student, I'll just add. Um, it will be a fun podcast. I have um, know it will be just as good as this podcast. So please do tune in to our next podcast for this. Absolutely. And we thank you for listening to this one. And we will uh, see you again in episode two. Take care. Bye.